Uh, hey guys, if we haven't met, uh, my name's Josh. I'm one uh, amongst several men and women who help lead Van City Church. A few weeks ago, I was walking into uh, Fred Meyer with my son, and I noticed this gentleman exiting as we entered. And he seemed at a glance, uh, you know, an average middle-aged suburban dad. He had young children around him. But down the inside of his forearm, I couldn't help but notice what seemed to be his only visible tattoo. And it was bold black letters that seemed to indicate that it was uh, a newish tattoo. And it read, do what thou wilt. And in the few seconds it took to pass this man and his family, my mind went to Aleister Crowley. In 1904, English occultist Aleister Crowley visited Cairo, Egypt, where he claimed to have been visited by a supernatural entity. And this being was said to provide Crowley with something he called the Book of the Law, which in turn became the basis for our new religion called Thelema. So for Crowley, Thelema was this mystic spirituality that could perhaps best be described in his famous quote, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This line of thinking was carried on and adapted by a number of philosophers after Crowley. Uh, noteworthy among them was uh, Anton LaVey in 1969, who authored the Satanic Bible. For LaVey, do what thou wilt, elevated the individual to the authoritative seat of God. And consequently, humanity had no need of a higher power as they themselves would act as their own gods. And it all sounds terribly intense, but you don't need a black cowl or a pitchfork to recognize that the worldview continues to permeate the host culture all around us today. In the early 90s, uh, pop culture boogeyman Marilyn Manson articulated Satanism quite well when he said this, in America, Satanism is sensationalized and misunderstood. People associate it with worship, worshiping the devil, but it's really a philosophy about individuality and about self-preservation. It's about being your own God. In 2000, Jennifer Lopez, of all people, this is a, <laughs> the first and, and maybe last time we quote Jennifer Lopez, I don't know, uh, she essentially espoused the same view I came upon this week, or this quote this week, when she said, my heart is the ruler of all my being. Today, you may not hear do what thou wilt quite as much, except on the suburban guy I passed on the way into Fred Meyer, but instead you'll hear things like be true to yourself. And that comes from a, a number of sources, in particular a number of noteworthy and famous individuals, whether it's Oprah or Ryan Gosling or Ellen DeGeneres or Taylor Swift or the Will Smith dynasty, actors and activists and politicians constantly with this rhetoric about be true to yourself. Because interestingly, it's not necessarily that Jennifer Lopez or Ellen DeGeneres or even Marilyn Manson are, are formal Satanists per se, but they espouse what could easily be argued is a satanic philosophy. And you know, far be it from me to like nitpick an ideal so preciously held by the world around us. But that was being funny because I do that all the time. Get it? Uh, <clears throat> the point is there's a problem with it. Uh, a, a rather big problem, actually, because the presupposition built into be true to yourself is that you are fundamentally very good. You are the best option among many in terms of to whom one might be true in the first place. So be true to yourself because you are great. And that begs the question, are you? Are you uh, really? 
And then the answer could be maybe sometimes, perhaps there are occasions on which you make yourself proud. And I, I'm not being facetious. A, a beautiful victory is in your day-to-day -day existence when you are the person that you would like to be, when you are healthy and mature, and when you keep in step with God's spirit in the language of the scriptures, when you obey the teachings of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, when you enjoy life. And of course, then there are all those other moments and instances during which you are not that person. Moments of choosing passive aggression rather than the mature navigation of relational conflict. Or moments of flaking out rather than demonstrating faithfulness. Or moments of white lies rather than honesty. Or excess rather than restraint. Of materialism rather than simplicity. Of lust rather than purity. And on and on that list goes. So which self are you being true to exactly? The good you or the bad one? The one that you like to be or the one that you'd prefer not to be? And are they one and the same? Is all of that you? And it isn't simply a matter of good and bad decisions, I would argue, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. No, inside the chaotic tangle of all that you are is a collection of desires. And tragically, many of said desires are in conflict with other desires. You want, for example, to spend more time with your family or spend more time reading or exercising or working on that project or whatever it might be, but you also want to zone out and tumble headlong into the useless, soul-sucking black hole of Instagram, you know? Or you want to wake up early to pray and read your Bible if you're a disciple of Jesus, but you also want to dedicate hours of your week to some show, some mini-series, and which of those desires is you on a fundamental level? If you were to actually do what thou wilt, you know, which thou will do the wilting? So, <laughs> that, okay, it was funny. Yeah, I thought that wouldn't land. It did. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. For weeks now, we've been working our way through a teaching series and a set of practices designed to usher us along on the journey of discovering our identity and calling. So we've talked at length about the way that down throughout church history, much emphasis has been placed on the great importance of every disciple of Jesus learning who it is that they are and who it is that they are not. Because every human being is created in God's image to follow Jesus and partner with God in moving the world forward. You have been uniquely crafted by a very creative God. And consequently, there's a person that you are and a person that you are not. And there is work for which God has made you. And this means that disciples of Jesus don't get to craft our own identity and calling. They are both gifts from God. And because God is not coercive, he offers them as gifts rather than imposing on them on you as irresistible. All that to say, one essential task in our journey of discipleship is to discover our identity and calling. And such a task is rightly described as unfolding in tandem with our journey of discipleship altogether because it is indeed a process. Because you yourself are in the process of becoming someone else all the time. This is true if you follow Jesus, and it's true if you do not. We are all being formed into someone over time. So before we wade further into those waters, let's have a look at Ephesians. We call this the book of Ephesians, if you've been around the Bible for a while, but it's actually a letter written by a fellow called Paul in the first century, and it was delivered to a church in the city of Ephesus. Now in it, the author, Paul, has a bit to say about this idea of identity and calling. So let's read Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes, 
As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So you notice that right away in verse 1, Paul is urging his readers to live according to their calling, and it's something that they have received from God. But as he goes on, his primary concern seems seems to have to do with the character of his readers rather than, say, their vocation. Now, if you remember the last couple of weeks of teaching and practice, we argued that your calling has at least two primary dimensions. There's the outward dimension, which addresses, you know, what you do as the person you are becoming, that is, your work, your vocation, your career, but there's also an inner dimension, and that has to do with the maturing character of the person you are becoming, and both are crucial in discovering your identity and calling, but here Paul is addressing the latter. He's talking about character. So calling is about more than solving a personality test or finding the right fit for your job. It's about becoming more like your teacher and your master Jesus, and in the process, you are better understanding your true self. Skip down to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, all sorts of different uh, roles that leaders in the church play, and they do this for this reason. Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, the King, the Messiah. From him, the whole body, all the people of God, the church, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grow and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. God, the Father, who crafted you in his own image, has a vision for your life in particular, and that vision involves growing into full maturity, not just for self-awareness and for work, not just for your vocation and your job and your calling in an outward sense, though those are absolutely important, but also to become like Jesus in the way that you think, in the way that you talk, in the way that you feel, in the way that you behave, your actions, all to become mature and like Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do, meaning non-Jewish people are in context, not followers of Jesus, not the people of God. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity. In other words, do what thou wilt. And they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness." If you have become a disciple of Jesus, whether that was decades ago or earlier this morning, 
you have what Paul calls an old self and a new self. And the imagery is actually of garments. It's a metaphor about clothes. To, it's to take up the lifelong pursuit of discipleship is to peel away an old outfit that you've worn for years or whatever it might be and to dress yourself in a new outfit. Thomas Merton describes the process this way. You find peace not by rearranging the circumstances of your life, but by realizing who you are at the deepest level. Sooner or later, we must distinguish between what we are not and what we are. We must accept the fact that we are not what we would like to be. We must cast off our false exterior self like the cheap and showy garment that it is. We must find our real self in all its elemental poverty, but also in its great and very simple dignity created to be the child of God. Of course, each and every disciple of Jesus, every one of you sitting in this sanctuary this evening listening as I say these words, if you follow Jesus, then you know this already. This isn't easy. Between the person that you once were, the old outfit that you wore, and the identity that God has spoken over you now, which is that you are blameless, that you are holy, that you are perfected, you are an inheritor of all the gifts of God. Between those things, there's this complicated tension. And there is a gap between the old self and the new self. And following Jesus is about closing that gap a little more every day. And this means, listen, that discovering your identity and calling is one of the steps that you take in closing that gap between the old self and the new self. Pete Scazzaro puts it like this, living faithfully to our true self in Christ represents one of the great tasks of discipleship. So for weeks, we've been unpacking multiple facets of this task, the shadow side, the false identities, your vocation, your job, your calling. But all of this invites another broader question, which is how will we be our true selves? Yes, the necessity of discovering your identity and calling has been argued throughout church history. That's not new. We didn't make it up. Yes, we have a shadow side to overcome that's well represented in the scriptures, well represented in psychology, even common sense logic. Yes, we have work and vocation to discover. All of this is wrapped up in, our, in discovering your identity and calling, becoming the person that God has created us to be. But how? We have tools for certain steps along the way of this journey. That's what the practices have been all about. But how to make the journey in the first place and how to make the journey in the broad sense. Because uh, if you haven't noticed, the world around you is insane. And while it's true that the for-profit news media is designed to feed on and embellish negativity and fear all the time, the world isn't exactly making their job difficult. I mean, to begin uh, even just this week, an elementary school shooting in California marked the 317th mass shooting in America this year. This year. And that is thus far good news in the sense that the number of American mass shootings in 2016 was 483. But if you set those horrifying satanic numbers aside for a moment, there's plenty of insanity left to go around. The, the ever-increasing vitriol between the right and the left 
isn't just about socio-political opinions in this particular season. We aren't, in other words, just upset about like taxes or immigration or in a pragmatic sense. This is a conversation, a debate, an argument over morality. Today we think of political opponents, whether you're on the right or the left or somewhere in between, as evil subhumans, as loathsome. And while there have always been and always will be people whose personhood is tragically tangled up in a political agenda, the stakes seem to be higher every day. Just last year, in light of uh, changing legislation around refugees, for example, we at Van City had this brief time of prayer and lament. Um, you know, we uh, help fund this justice initiative called Hear the Cry that does primarily work with refugees here in the Pacific Northwest. So we read from the scriptures about God's concern for the refugee and the foreigner, and we prayed for them. And there were people who left the church because we prayed for the refugee and the foreigner. Because for many, to infer... Any for or against in the awful chaos of political division is to take an unambiguous moral position. And we were, but not in a political sense. So for all of our aversion to objective morality as a modern, advanced society, it sure seems to be a topic of constant conversation. There's this endless parade of celebrities, sexual harassment, and assault, and politicians accused of pedophilia, and we rightly hate evil when we see it. We recoil, and we say this isn't right, and we should, but on whose authority? Who defines it, and who, and who defeats it? Is it us? Uh, we are a collective people in search of a God all the time, and yet we have yoked that burden onto our own shoulders in the ongoing effort to be true to ourselves. Do what thou wilt. And the effort is perpetually frustrating because as unprepared as culture at large may be for such a revelation, it seems that there's a horrible paradox at the center of our quest for an advanced progressive utopia. And that is that the problem isn't just them, whoever them is to you. The problem is also you. The problem is me. The problem is humanity itself. We are bent out of shape. We are bent away from the good things that bring about human flourishing and thriving and toward the things that bring about human destruction. And disciples of Jesus have known this for 2,000 years. We've argued for it for just as long. But we have set out to do war against our own brokenness. And that war is something called spiritual formation. One of my favorite theologians, someone I don't quote nearly enough, is Dallas Willard. And he, see, it's funny because I do it all the time. Uh, he describes the concept like this. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. It's one thing to discover the person on the other end of your identity and calling, to look through the fog of the present and into the future and see, I think this is who I'm meant to be. But it's quite another to actually become that person. Now, something we must understand is that spiritual formation isn't a uniquely Christian concept. And I've described this before at length, but here we go again. Spiritual formation is universally human, and it is universally inevitable, meaning you are all being formed every day. You are all becoming someone else. And this is how. 
This is a spiritual formation paradigm developed over years of study and collaboration behind the scenes amongst our team and our extended team at Bridgetown Church in Portland. Before we officially planted Van City, we were actually working these ideas out. And this is a synthesis of data from the New Testament, from psychology, from theology, from writers and thinkers far more intelligent and experienced than myself. And as you can see, it begins with something called unintentional spiritual formation. Next week, we'll move on to the intentional side of things. But this is how simply living and functioning in the world around you is actually forming you and me. And it begins with the stories that we believe. If you look to the top of the diagram there, this is the lens through which you see the world. If, for example, you agree with Jennifer Lopez that... You know, your heart is the ruler of all your being. That's twice quoted Jennifer Lopez. It's the same quote, but that's twice Jennifer Lopez in one evening. And then feelings trump facts. Logic and reason become secondary to felt things, or they at least become synonymous. Um, I happened upon some internet video a while back, which I'm absolutely sure was completely compelled by some political agenda. I don't know what it was. For me, it was purely comedic, so if you know, and don't be offended because I'm ignorant. Um, but it involved some fellow who was experimenting with, you know, by antagonizing university students, uh, walking around asking them questions. To me, it felt like a Borat sketch. So he went, he went around um, asking university students, I can't remember exactly where, uh, how they would react if he, for example, he was an adult white male, and he asked them what they would think if he identified as a woman. And the interviewees, it represented in the video at least, all insisted that they would readily accept him as a woman if that was what he chose to how he chose to identify. So next he asked, what if he also chose to identify as Chinese? And they, they answered that, you know, that they would accept that as well. And then he asked if he would, what if he identified as a five-year-old? You know, he kept pushing it. And they, they argued that, that if that's how he felt, he should be accepted as a first-grade Chinese girl. And finally, he asked if he, who was a man of ordinary stature, uh, would be accepted as someone who's six foot five. And everyone immediately was like, no, get out of my face. It's ridiculous. You can't possibly be. And that's when it started to feel like a Borat sketch to me. It was like, I just could imagine, you know, him. <laughs> I want to do the impression. I'm not going to. Um, what if I was six foot five? You know, that thing. And... Um, my point has nothing to do with debate around like identity politics or anything, but with this very interesting insistence on what many feel in, the, in like our current cultural moment, which is that if you feel something, then something might be true. And maybe that is the case sometimes, but maybe it's not. But if that's a story that you believe, then you will live and talk and behave a particular way. And you will be shaped over time by the ensuing interactions and experiences that you have. So the first element is the stories that you believe. The second is that you are formed by your habits. The things that you do, do something to you. A tremendous amount of writing and research has been done over the last few decades in the field of psychology on the power of habit, both inside and outside of the Christian tradition. And what all that exhaustive research is getting at is that you are actually little more than the cumulative effect of your daily and weekly rituals. What you do on a regular basis is what you become. Because your habits get to the core of your being much more than a book that you read or some guy yakking at you for a half hour on a Sunday night because they actually shape the things that you love. They shape your longings. 
For example, uh, I'm a movie person personally. I'm sure a lot of you guys are as well. I obsess over movies. I often experience God's closeness and God's love and the beauty in God's world through movies. I host a podcast about movies. When I was as young as three years old, my dad began taking my brother and me to the movies all the time. And for as long as I can remember, movies have been something uh, more than just entertainment for me personally, but something like soul care or comfort food or a way to experience God. So, you know, I care a lot about movies. I got movie pass. I go to the movies several times a month. I get together with the same group of friends once a month. Uh, we call it movie club. It's not that creative. And we do a double feature, two movies back to back. And uh, I, we gather up and I have a room dedicated to watching movies on the door of which hangs this sign. It's very important. Do you guys see that? If you ever have your phone on your person or in your hand or out or on, you hate movies. You shouldn't be allowed to watch them ever. You guys aren't with me on that one. All right, we'll move right on. Now, the point is, how did I get there? Did I read a book about the greatness of movies and intellectually conclude movies will now be meaningful in my life? No, I didn't do that. Heather, I didn't do that. Thank you for the response. (laughs) I need it. Um... I didn't listen to a TED Talk about movies and decide, I'm going to be into movies. I didn't hear a sermon about movies and said, I'm going to be the kind of guy who likes movies now. I have become the kind of person for whom movies are meaningful through more than three decades of habit. I went out of my way to do it. Our habits shape the things that we love, for better or for worse, and nothing, nothing is more influential to your character than what you love. The point I'm making is that the things that we do, do something to us. And thirdly, we are being shaped by our relationships. Most of us become more like the people we spend time with the more we spend time with them. Now, I realize this varies from person to person. Some of you take on attributes of people around you uh, more easily than others. But regardless of how strong-willed you are or imagine yourself to be, given enough time and enough proximity, you will absorb some of the people with whom you spend all your time. Um, This is especially true if you're married. You know, my my wife and I are very different people. But we find ourselves taking on attributes of the other even when we wish that it weren't so. For instance, uh, I'll often find new ways to, (laughs) she hates this, but I'll find new ways to describe very good things with variations of the adjective righteous. So she, the other night, asked me, how's the soup? And I said, it is the righteousness of the dawn. And at first, she shook her head in shame. She's like, this is getting really old. Please stop with the righteous thing. But then a couple of weeks after that, or it might have just been a few days later, I I asked her how her lunch was. And she said, it is the righteousness of ages. (laughs) (coughs) And this is certainly true of more than just stupid catchphrases. You know, the Apostle Paul writes that bad company corrupts good morals, meaning if you spend time with corrupt people, your own value system will itself become corrupted. You are shaped by your relationships. And fourthly, all of this is taking place in the context of an environment. For most of us, you know, that could be the city in which you live, whether it's Vancouver, the Portland metro area, and even that itself is something of a formation machine. You know, we live in or around this influential cultural hub that uh, is crafting certain attributes of culture that permeates throughout the metro area, and really not just that, but slowly shaping an entire region of the country. And 
Then there are the smaller environments in which we carry out the routine of our everyday lives. Perhaps for you, that's like in this area downtown, which is a different thing than, say, the more suburban or rural areas of East Vancouver, which is a different thing than, say, the microcultures of your home or your family or your workplace or your classroom, your friend groups. And then uh, the umbrella over all that is the unstoppable futuristic machine of globalization. So for more than a decade of my life, I, I traveled the world constantly, and I've noticed that even from my own narrow perspective, and I'm just one guy, so maybe it was different if you've done a lot of traveling, but back in, say, like 2001 or something, there was such a radical sense of cultural shift from city to city and state to state and certainly country to country, and now it's beginning to blur more and more with time. Today, if you visit another part of the country or even another part of the world, your chances of finding something that looks really familiar and really comforting in that sense are, are really high. Hip millennial Instagrammers look in Portland look like hip millennial Instagrammers in New York, look like hip millennial Instagrammers in San Francisco, look like hip millennial Instagrammers in Sydney, look like hip millennial Instagrammers in, you know, London. A, a few weeks ago, I spent a couple of days with a big group of South African pastors, and until they talked, you'd had no idea that they weren't from here, given the way that they dressed or presented themselves. And then after they talked, you realized that they sounded different, but they were listening to the same music, they were tracking the same trends online, they were reading the same authors, watching the same shows. Because of the digital age and your smartphone and social media, the world is getting smaller and sadly less creative every single day. So, the stories that you believe, your habits, your relationships, all in the context of an environment, they have this synergistic energy to conspire and collaborate in shaping you into a certain type of person. And all of this happens over time. For easy evidence of this, follow me for a brief mental, experience, mental experiment. I want you to think back to a decade ago. I'm serious, if you don't mind following me in this. Think back to a decade ago, that's 2007, if you want to do the quick math, and try to recall what was important to you in 2007. In the winter of 2007, what was your daily routine? Think about what your work was like or who your friends were in 2007, in November of 2007. Chances are, for better or for worse, you were someone else, probably someone radically different, at least to a certain extent. Because these factors, the stories that you believe, your habits, your relationships, the environment in which you function and live and breathe, they all shape you into someone else over time. And all of these things happen through your life experiences. So if you endure a divorce or if you have a child or if you suffer through an illness or if you experience death or you make a lot of money or you lose a lot of money, whatever it is, big life experiences shape you over time. And that's exactly my point. All of this has an effect on you. All of this changes you and that change is inevitable. So if this is how you change to become more like your environment or more like your friends or coworkers or more like the habits in which you indulge, how do you change on purpose to become more like Jesus of Nazareth? We'll get into all that next week and the answer might be surprising, but to end tonight, I really want us to take a moment to sort of sit in the reality of this paradigm, which I know we've visited before, but to think about it again. Think about the stories that you believe. Think about your habits and your relationships, your environment, 
and posit the simple question, who are you becoming? If you were to work your way through that paradigm piece by piece, and you think about those things left unchanged, just as they are today, who is it that you see yourself becoming? Is that person someone who is more like Jesus than the person you are today or were 10 years ago? Or is it someone else? And part of your homework this week is asking that question, turning it over in your head and asking the people around you, asking someone you trust. And don't think about the changes that you keep putting off or the habits that you've been meaning to take up. Like, well, well, I will be different once I take up this habit I've been telling myself for five years that I'll take up. Think about you as you are now on a trajectory into the future. Who are you becoming? Think about it. Pray about it. Talk to someone. And then this week's practice is a practical assessment of one of the primary dimensions of unintentional spiritual formation, which is your habits. So you'll sit down with your community, you'll go to practicingtheway.org, and you will begin an audit of your habits. If you're not yet in a community, or if you're you know, in the future listening to this on the podcast, get some friends together and do it all the same. It's actually terribly straightforward. For one week, you'll keep a diary, it's an inventory of sorts, of your life rhythms and your habits, your morning routine, the time you spend on your phone, what you busy yourself with at work, after work, the money you spend. And it may sound really involved. There's really simple instructions uh, in the curriculum. But it's actually terribly simple. It's just a week. The data that you'll uncover is so, so valuable because, and please listen to me on this, your habits will reveal to you what you love, what you really love, not just what you think you love. Philosopher uh, Jamie K.A. Smith famously puts it like this. He says, you are what you love, but you may not love what you think. So you'll keep a diary for one week. It's actually really easy. Every one of you can totally do it. Then you'll sit back and you'll ask yourself, looking at the diary, what are these habits doing to me? Are they making me more healthy, more mature, more like Jesus? Or are they doing something else? On a practical note, I realize the notion of journaling your routines for a week may seem a bit daunting, but it doesn't have to be. Just keep a small journal on your person, or you can use your digital one. Um, select a recurring increment, maybe every two hours or three hours or whatever it might be, and then just jot a few bullet points. Oh, I, I spent this many hours on my phone. I spent this many hours talking to a friend, whatever it might be. Um, I've actually done this on several occasions for extended periods of time, and it really is quite manageable once you actually decide that you're going to do it. So as always at least give it a shot. If you aren't willing to even give it a try, maybe that's all the information you need to make an assessment. Think about that. But I'd like to close this evening with a quote um, from a book called The Power of Habit in which Jamie K. A. Smith writes this. We are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all.
a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. The things that we do do something to us. So may we learn to do the things of Jesus, to want the things of Jesus, and to be transformed in the process. Let's pray together, if you don't mind.